0: Now take your copies of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 9. we to be reading and studying today verses 1 through 9 of this chapter. For those of you who are visiting with us, you have uh, joined us in the midst of a series of sermons through Luke's Gospel. Don't worry, uh, if you by chance visit again in another year or two, we might still be in Luke's Gospel at the rate that we're going. Uh, but over the last several weeks, we've been looking especially at some of the Uh, miracles that Jesus worked in Luke chapter 8. Some of the miracles that Jesus worked to manifest His own glory, to show who He was, to raise this question uh, in the minds of those who saw Him and met Him. Who is this Jesus? And we'll see that question again today. But we're also going to see Jesus now uh, giving His own power and authority to His representatives in the world, to His apostles, and sending them out, ministering. We're going to be studying today Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9, that's on page 866 of our Bibles, if you've not yet found it. Uh, And uh, for good measure, I'm going to read verse 10 as well uh, to see the other side of uh, the end of of this short passage. So before we read together, Luke chapter 9, please join me in prayer again. Oh, gracious Lord and God, we thank you that you are the one who gives all gift uh, and power and authority uh, through your Holy Spirit uh, to your word. O oh, Lord, we thank you that uh, through the apostles who were originally uh, delegated by you and set up by you, we have received faithfully the record of what you accomplished and what your church in the beginning ages accomplished, and we find also something that you are calling us into. And so, O oh, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to uh, come and to receive from the authority of your word, that we might know and believe and trust in Jesus, this one about whom we hear such things. We pray that you would teach us more about him, and cause us to trust in the Savior you have sent into the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In now God's word as we find it in Luke chapter 9. And he called the twelve together, and gave them power and authority, And on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Nine years ago, Sarah and I were expecting our first child. A wonderful time in the life of any family. We were dreaming and thinking about uh, baby names and birth plans Uh, and all the joys that parenthood would bring. And it was into that anticipation that a friend of mine came and asked if I might be able to watch his son for a few hours one afternoon. He told me uh, he and his wife had to be somewhere without their six-month-old, and they promised they they would only be gone a few hours, and uh, they didn't want to impose, and uh, actually, wouldn't this be a great opportunity uh, to get yourself ready? Uh, for what life was about to be like. Now, we were expecting our first, and I thought we were prepared. (laughs) I thought we were prepared because Sarah grew up around babies. She had nieces. She had cousins. She did a ton of babysitting uh, in high school, and I, on the other hand, had never held a baby in my life. (laughs) So this was a great uh, opportunity for me. Uh, It was a glimpse in what was about to become my new normal, and that dangerous thought crossed my mind. How hard could it be? How hard could it be to take care of a baby? Now, the day came, and suddenly I found myself about 30 minutes into a meltdown, and I'm bouncing, and I'm shushing, and I'm trying to console this tiny human who is staring me right in the face and screaming at me, and I realized I have no idea how hard this could be. And this was a wonderful experience for me. It was a, a sort of turning point in a realization of what life was about to be like. It was the kind of learning experience that you can only get by actually doing a thing that you've been thinking about. We've all been through similar experiences in other uh, realms of life. There comes a point in which every nursing student has to actually start their first IV. Uh, Every marketing uh, major has to pitch to their first client. Every plumber's apprentice has to snake their first drain. And, And actually, every apostle at some point has to be sent out to preach and to heal and to proclaim the kingdom of God. And so in these verses, what we see is Jesus sending his disciples, 12 of them, on an apostolic internship, letting them dip their toes in Uh, into what the church's new normal is going to look like. In these verses, Jesus is beginning to get his church ready for what life and ministry is going to be like after he's gone. In fact, that's one of the major themes of this whole chapter. As we turn now in uh, chapter 9 in Luke's Gospel, we see uh, that uh, the silhouette of the cross is just now beginning to loom on the horizon. It is in chapter 9 that these disciples first go out to minister without Jesus. It is in chapter 9, the first time that Jesus tells his disciples, the Son of Man must go up to Jerusalem and he must be handed over and he will suffer many things and be killed and on the third day rise. And this is the chapter that ends, as you know, with uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, turning his face toward Jerusalem where all these things are about to happen. So this is a shift in what we've been reading, Jesus is headed toward the cross, and the church is headed toward ministry after the ascension. And Jesus is giving the apostles just a taste of the church's new normal. He's getting them ready for the way that he will work in the world, not presently, uh, not personally, but the way that Jesus will work in the world through his church. Today we're going to take a look at at this learning uh, transition point for the disciples, this experience that they had, uh, these 12 men. And we're going to see some of the principles uh, of Christian ministry that endure for the church. There will be some differences here. We're not uh, the apostles. And Jesus gave this charge to them uh, and not to us. He hasn't given us the same power and authority that we find here. We'll, We'll talk about some of the differences. But I do think that as Jesus is giving a glimpse of how the church goes forth and how he works through his church, we are going to see some of the enduring principles of faithful Christian ministry that apply to pastors and elders and Sunday school teachers and regular faithful Christians and all kinds of aspects of your own life. So, as we look at this passage, several principles stand out. And the first, I think, is this idea of a kingdom compassion. And there's a kingdom compassion here that Jesus is calling the apostles into, and we find that in uh, Jesus' charge in verses 1 and 2. He called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out doing two things. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Now, this is not a change in Luke's gospel. Actually, these things by now are very familiar. We have seen lots of proclaiming of the kingdom and lots of healing, and we've seen those things together, and we've seen those things in Jesus. Jesus is calling his disciples together and sending out his apostles to have the same sort of compassionate kingdom ministry that he himself has had, proclaiming the coming of God's kingdom and healing and helping those that he ministered to. Jesus came declaring in person, really, a message that was very similar to the message that God preached to Moses through the burning bush. You remember God's words to Moses. It shows up in Exodus chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and and the Israelites are there in Egypt and they are languishing in slavery and oppression, and the Lord shows up to Moses and he tells Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. I have heard their cry, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them. You remember the rest of the story, the way that the Lord sends that message, that the Lord has come down to deliver his people, and so that the people will know, so that they will believe, he also sent his message with signs and wonders. In fact, he sent his message with signs and wonders so that even if the people didn't believe in this message that was coming, even the Egyptians around the Israelites would at least acknowledge that the Lord was working through them. And that was a lot like what Jesus' ministry was like. He came preaching a message, proclaiming that God was coming to deliver his people and so that everybody would know, so that nobody could deny. He also came working signs and miracles. He came proclaiming the message that God has come near. That in him, in Jesus, God is working to deliver men from the slavery and oppression of sin. And he also came working miracles. And those miracles, you remember, very often were to give evidence to the message that he was preaching. Remember chapter 5. Jesus said to the, uh, the Pharisees there who were questioning him, he said, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. See, these things went together. There was this compassion that was going forth, but it wasn't just a bodily compassion, and actually it wasn't just a spiritual compassion. Jesus didn't come and say, your sins are forgiven, and that's all that matters, and that's all you should worry about, and I'm going to be over here in this other direction. If you want to hear anything else, spiritual, come and talk to me later. Jesus married these two together. Jesus had a ministry of compassion and a ministry of both word and deed, and he was calling his disciples calls his church into that same sort of compassionate ministry. He brings them and he calls them together and he sends them out to preach the message that God sees and God hears and God knows. That he has come down to deliver his people. And he also sends them out to work miracles. He sends them out with power and authority, we're told, over all demons and to cure diseases. Now here is one of those Differences that I mentioned. Differences between the apostles and the church today, and the difference is that we no longer have personal access to that kind of power and authority that the apostles had. This is a temporary thing for the life of the church. It was given to the apostles, and when they died, that power and authority was no longer accessible in that way to the church. Paul talks about his ministry to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 He says that his ministry was marked by what he called the signs of a true apostle. Signs and wonders, mighty works. And we can read the the Acts of the Apostles and we can find some of those signs and wonders, those mighty works, some of the same things that Jesus did, the apostles did. They raised people from the dead. They healed people. They cast out demons everywhere they went. And that was so that when the apostles spoke, people would sit up, and listen and know that something was happening that wasn't just these men and their authority, but they would know that the Holy Spirit, God himself, was speaking through them. But when they passed, that age of the church ceased. And you see that even in the New Testament as, uh, for example, James begins to tell the church, what does normal uh, ministry in the church look like? What do you do with sick people who are among you? Well, you have the elders come and anoint them, and you pray for them. That's not to denigrate prayer. Prayer is, is a wonderful thing, and James goes on to say the prayer of a righteous man is effective in its working, that there is power that comes to God's people through prayer. But James doesn't say, take those who are sick and rebuke the fever. He doesn't say, lay your hands on them and command the fever and the palsy to be gone. He says, pray. Humble yourself before the Lord. This is what the new normal for the church looks like. And so there is a difference here. There is still power available to God's people. And we submit ourselves, we intercede for one another as we did today, asking that the Lord would heal, that the Lord would touch his people in body as well as in spirit. But the Lord is the one with the authority and the power to choose whom he will heal and whom he will not heal. We don't have that authority yet. Without apostolic signs, we still have a part to play in kingdom compassion for the Lord. Jesus sent the apostles out proclaiming God's kingdom in word and deed. They cared for bodies and they cared for souls. They taught that the Father of spirits is also the Lord of creation. And actually for about 2,000 years, Christ Church has been most effective where it has preached the word of Christ together uh, with acts of mercy. Now, the thing is that that men have a tendency to separate what God has joined together. This happens with word and deed, just like it happens with marriage. And so, what normally happens is that when uh, word and deed are separated, uh, men tend to, uh, women, uh, missionaries and Christians and, and all sorts of people, tend to let down the ministry of the word and to hold up the ministry of deed. Because those are the sorts of things that are impressive in our world and in our culture. It looks good on on a missionary prayer card to talk about the way that you're fighting against injustice, however you term that. It looks good to show that you're helping to alleviate poverty. It looks good to show that you're setting up a medical outpost somewhere in a jungle. Those are sort of positive, immediate, identifiable results And because we love positive, immediate, identifiable results, it just so happens that those are the things that get elevated while the ministry of the Word tends to sink lower and lower. Those are all good things, folks. Setting up medical missions, we support some of those things, one from our own number we support in some of those things. We support those who go out. We prayed today for a Mago school, and we're, uh, we're praying that they would teach children well. It's a Christian elementary school. What a wonderful thing. Those are good, identifiable, positive results. But so often, if those are the only things we're focused on, we can forget that the preaching of the gospel is the most powerful thing that the church possesses. What does Paul say? Romans chapter 1, verse 16, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. The gospel is the power of God. The church still has power. Christians still have power, and that power shows up every time we share the gospel with someone else because God is at work in the gospel. Very often bringing people to himself, sometimes hardening hearts against these things. But God is at work. There is power in the gospel. Of course, the world thinks the gospel is foolishness. Sometimes believers want to please the world so much that they abandon the authority that we have been given by the Lord to say to men and women, boys and girls, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Sometimes when those things are divided... Uh, The ministry of the word is what is let down. But on the other side, uh, history testifies that Christianity flourishes when the word of Christ goes forth adorned, uh, accompanied rather by what Paul calls a life that adorns the doctrine of God. When these two two things are together, when the word is there and the deeds of love and mercy and charity are there, the Lord typically, uh, we see in history, uses that to change things and to bring wonderful victories for the gospel. In the fourth century, the the Roman Emperor Julian wrote a letter, uh, and that was because uh, Julian was upset about this meteoric rise of Christianity. It was getting too big, it was growing too fast, everybody was beginning to think and wonder about what it might like to be a Christian, and he wrote a letter to one of his pagan high priests concerned about Christianity, or as he called it, atheism, that was his view. Christianity was atheism in Julian's mind, and he said atheism has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal, he said, that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar. It is a scandal that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render to them. How was it that Christianity took over the Western world? Well, in part, there was some politics going on. There were people in high positions. There was influence. There was the Holy Spirit working through the preaching of the gospel. But it also uh, took over the, the Western world because God's kingdom was going forth in word and deed together, not just from the apostles not just from the pastors and the teachers. It was going forth from everyday believers, speaking about Jesus and ministering to their neighbors. It went forth as as God's people engaged in this kingdom compassion. And the Lord calls us to that same kind of kingdom compassion. As a church, in, in our giving and in your support and in your prayer and in your going, we ought to be concerned for the word of Christ. We also ought to be concerned for deeds of love and mercy that that go naturally together, that prove that we're not trying to get a notch on our belt by converting sinners, but that because Christ has loved us, so also we love those that he puts in our path. And it's a kingdom compassion, a ministry of word and deed. So that's the first element that we see here, I think, about faithful ministry. But to that, uh, Jesus adds a calling to a prophetic urgency. So a kingdom compassion is our first point, and a prophetic urgency is our second. We see this uh, in these traveling instructions that Jesus gives to his people. He tells them what to take with them and and where to stay and what to do when they face rejection. That first one, uh, what they ought to take. Actually, it's a pretty short packing list. Uh, Verse 3 says, take nothing. (laughs) I could have stopped there, but he he wants to make sure that they've gotten the point. Take nothing with you. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, don't have two tunics, don't take a change of clothes. Not too long ago, our youth group went on their annual fall retreat. And and as part of that preparation, Andrew sent out uh, a list of the things that the kids should take with them. When I used to lead those youth group uh, trips, I would do the same thing. And inevitably, every single year, there were kids who showed up with things that they should not have brought with them. Typically, it was homework. Sometimes it was entire duffel bags full of Nerf guns and no clothes. But also, every year, every single year, there were the over-preparers who would come to me, and I could hear the anxiety in their voice. Well, what about this? Can I take these? Won't we need some snacks? How will I make it through a weekend if I can't use my phone? Can I bring this very large, very unnecessary object with me because I feel good when I have it? And I'd have to take them and very gently say... No, (laughs) you don't need those things. You don't need them because I've taken care of all of the other things. Snacks will be provided. I'll have a phone in case you have to call your parents. We'll have so many things planned for you that you will forget that you're missing that large, unnecessary object. I had to call them, in a sense, to just stick to the basics and to trust me. And that's the point of what Jesus is saying in verse 3. He's sending out his disciples, his his apostles into the world, and he's telling them to trust him because he will provide what they need. This was a mission of urgency. They had sandals on their feet, they had the word in their mouth, and Jesus would provide the rest. And if you are on mission for Jesus, it's far more important that you depend on him than that you have all the things that the world thinks you need in order to be effective and comfortable. And then Jesus uh, told his apostles where they ought to stay. Verse 4. He says, whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. Now that one's a little harder to understand, uh, just because of the the social difference between us uh, and this time. But in Israel, Jewish households were, were basically expected to provide a sort of basic... Uh, temporary hospitality to Jewish travelers. It might not be anything fancy. In fact, you might end up sleeping in the stable. But there was hospitality. There was a place to stay. There was food to eat. You were expected to provide that if you were a Jewish household and a Jewish traveler came to you. And if you were a Jewish traveler, you were expected to receive that hospitality, as meager as it may be, graciously. And in a way that was not a burden to the people who were opening their home to you. You know the old saying and how it goes. House guests are like fish, and after three days, both of them start to stink. And so the idea was that Jesus was sending out his apostles and he's saying, Don't make yourself odious to the people you're staying with. Don't make yourself a burden, and don't go from one place to another place seeking something just a little bit better so you can stay in the same place just a little bit longer. Their ministry was not supposed to be a settling ministry. Their ministry was supposed to be a going ministry. They were supposed to be fleet of foot and staying, in a sense, as little as they needed to in one place to get the word out. They were to be like like the parable of the sower. Like Jesus shows himself to be when very often the people get excited that Jesus is doing all of these miracles, and they say, we're going to keep him here. We're going to make him stay. And he says, no, I have to go somewhere else because I must preach the word of God there as well. He is the divine sower who scatters the seed of God's word everywhere as far as he can and trusts the Lord to provide results. And the apostles were to do the same, to trust the Lord to bring growth. Now, there were some places that they were being sent, that they ought not to expect growth at all. In fact, there were some places, and Jesus prepares them for this, that's that's, uh, necessary for us to see here, Jesus prepares them that some places they will experience rejection. And in those towns, Jesus says, when you leave, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Now, of, of the... Uh, instructions that Jesus gives, I think this one is the one that strikes us as maybe sounding a little bit harsh. Maybe it it seems to us like they're being called to break off all relationships uh, with anyone who's not a believer, to sort of thumb their nose and feel like they're superior and say, I will have nothing to do with you. It almost seems like it is for the apostles' sake, but the the key word and what Jesus says there is that word testimony, verse 5. Shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. It could also be translated as a witness. That meant that it wasn't just about shunning unbelievers. It was about having this prophetic message to them to to impress upon them the gravity of what they are rejecting. You see, at this time, uh, pious Jews would shake the dust off of their sandals in normally two situations. One is if you were traveling abroad, you were traveling through Gentile lands, and you would come home, and upon your re-entry into Palestine, you would take off your sandals and you would dust them off as a sign, perhaps, to the Gentiles, but also a reminder to yourself that nothing unclean can ever enter into the people of God. And you would do the same before you entered yourself, as a pious Jew, into the temple, It was a sign, it was a symbol, a reminder to the people that nothing unclean can come into God's presence. And in verse 5, Jesus is saying, when the gospel is preached and the people reject it, make sure you do something to impress on them the gravity of their rejection. Make sure they know that believing the gospel or not believing the gospel is not like choosing ice cream flavors. Some people like Rocky Road, some people like Mint Chip, and you're no better off or no worse, depending on which one you choose. It's not that simple. It's not that, that small of a thing. Believing or rejecting the gospel is a matter of eternal life or eternal death. There is a division happening, and the apostles cannot go into the world glibly just sort of accepting rejection as, eh, that's no big deal, really. Oh, that's okay for you, you You have your own way to God, and I have my way to God, and we'll just agree to disagree. This is what Jesus said, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. There's a division happening, condemnation or salvation. And then he says, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in the Son, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus is telling them when the gospel is rejected, and by the way, it will be rejected, make sure that people understand exactly what that means. It means condemnation. It means eternal judgment before the Lord. Now we see some of these instructions, and they're in a different time. They're they're for a different situation. They're in a different culture. And we we struggle sometimes to know how to apply these. But these are uh, the same sorts of principles that we ought to have in our own going, in our own ministry, to whomever the Lord puts before us. But sometimes we struggle to know exactly what to do with them. Now, From time to time, people uh, get the idea that that faithful Christian ministry means ministry without planning. If you really want to show that you're trusting the Lord, well, then you ought to go out into the world with, with no plan, with no accountability, and certainly not with any carry-on luggage. Because that shows that you are really trusting the Lord and not trusting in what you yourself can do. Just buy your plane ticket and be gone. But that's not what Christ is asking us to do. In fact, that's not even what he was always asking the apostles to do. There is a change for the apostles in Luke chapter 22, right before the crucifixion of Jesus. And he reminds them, he says, Do you remember that time that I sent you out with no money, no bag, no knapsack. Well, yeah. He says, did you lack anything? They said, we lack nothing. And then he says in the next verse, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. Likewise, a knapsack. In fact, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. It is not a universal Christian virtue to be unprepared for the kinds of ministry that God calls us to. Folks, if you receive a missionary support letter from somebody who says, I have no plan, I have no connections, I have no training. I have no accountability, but I think the Lord is calling me to go to the Congo. Do not be impressed with their spiritual maturity. And certainly do not send them your money. We don't need to be foolish in serving the Lord. We ought to be wise enough to see, well, how can I be faithful in following the Lord? How can I prepare as well as I'm able and how can I do that in a way that, that doesn't rely on myself? And I think that is the, tr- the, uh, the rub there. That's what the apostles may have been tempted to do, to rely on themselves instead of the Lord. So he gave them this temporary assignment where things were different, where they had nothing, and they learned to trust in Jesus so that for the rest of Christian history, people could be prepared and they could go and still trust in the Lord. You don't need to be foolish and following Christ, but on the other hand we do need to prove by our lives and by our ministry that we are dependent upon Christ. I think for us that means that we ought to live in such a way that shows the rest of the world that we are not tied down by our stuff. We ought to be Christians who would rather part with our trinkets, with our possessions, perhaps even with our necessities, as so many of our brothers and sisters in Christ have to, willing to part with all of these things rather than to see gospel ministry undone or unfunded. Jesus is calling his people to travel light, and I think he's telling us in our sojourn here and in our ministry we ought to do the same, depending upon him and trusting his him. We also ought to be people who have an urgency in our conversations like the apostles did. It doesn't mean that we have to keep a scorecard, either mentally or otherwise, that have I shared the gospel with somebody in the first five minutes of meeting them? Because if I have, I'm a good Christian, and if I haven't, I'm a bad Christian. But we also, I think, need to ask ourselves, how often have we refused to share the gospel with somebody that we have known for quite some time because we tell ourselves, you know, I'm just trying to gain their trust. I'm practicing friendship evangelism, we tell ourselves. And five years on, we we are forced to realize that it is all friendship and zero evangelism because the word of Christ has never come out of our mouths. There ought to be an urgency in the way that we speak and we talk. And in our churches, through our our missionaries and our prayers, we ought to be people who are not afraid to speak to the world about the dangers of rejecting Christ. And there is this understanding that if you do that uh, you must necessarily be belligerent or obnoxious or some sort of social pariah and you know how it goes your unbelieving neighbor your unbelieving family member your unbelieving coworker comes to you and they ask that question you're not one of those christians are you who believes that if i die without believing in jesus that i'm going to go to hell forever And you know the polite response to that. You know the socially acceptable response to that. It it is to soft-pedal what you actually believe. It is to to play down the witness of the gospel and say, well, well, I I can't know uh, your heart, uh, the Lord, He he knows. And, And we refuse sometimes because we don't want to be thought well of. We refuse to speak the truth of the apostles. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to proclaim the truth of Christ. Unless you repent, you will perish. Again, we don't have to be obnoxious. We don't have to be belligerent. We do have to be truthful. We have to make sure that those around us know what it is to reject Christ. That's what faithful ministry looks like it's full of compassion and it's full of urgency. And the third thing that we find here is that it is full of focus. Specifically, it's full of a focus on Jesus, a messianic focus is our third point. We find in verse 7 that Herod uh, the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. Now, if you consult uh, the commentators uh, on that verse, and I don't suggest that you do unless you are hankering for a nap, Uh, If you consult the commentators on that verse, you will sort of read them and and hear in their readings that they're they're stroking their scholarly beards and saying, well, I wonder what he's been hearing. Maybe Herod has been hearing all that we've been reading for the last eight chapters, or or maybe uh, he's been hearing about the apostles, but it couldn't be that he's just hearing about the apostles because Herod's asking about Jesus. And that's why we read until chapter, uh, I'm sorry, verse 10 today. That's why we read, because in verse 10, Luke closes the narrative of the apostolic ministry. It's called an inclusio in in literature terms. He begins, and it's all this nice, neat little package. Luke is, is, in a sense, making an apostolic sandwich, and Herod is the roast beef. He tells us first the beginning and the going of the apostolic ministry. He tells us at the end, the end of the apostolic ministry. And in the middle, right at the nugget of truth, he tells us what was the effect of the apostolic ministry. What was the effect of the apostolic ministry? It made people ask about Jesus. Herod is the point here in verses 7 to 9, but Herod is only the point because he is the most powerful person in the region and he has his ear to the voice of the people. Herod is the focus because he heard what everyone was saying, and some said that he might be John the Baptist. Some said that he might be Elijah. Others thought that he might be one of the prophets. In a number of weeks, we're going to see the same question and some of these same answers from Peter, and so we're not going to deal with that now, but we are seeing here Uh, that what's going on is that these men have gone out preaching the gospel and they've been healing in Jesus' name, and suddenly all of Galilee is abuzz with the question of who this Jesus might be. And all of them were wrong, of course. Herod was confused, but it all served to show that faithful Christian ministry always has the effect of turning the focus to Jesus and not to his people. This is how Paul put it, 2 Corinthians 2.15. He said, we, in his case, the apostles, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. It's like a stick of incense. It's like a Yankee candle that you put in a room and you light it, and it's the only thing that you can smell for days after you put it out. Paul walks into a room, and what do you smell? Jesus. Paul preaches to curious people, and what does he say? What do they hear? Christ and Him crucified. You ask Paul, Paul, what's the meaning of life? What's it all about? And what does Paul say? To live is Christ. Everything, the whole focus was about Jesus. That's what Christian ministry is supposed to be about. That's what the ministry of these men was about. They went out. 12 of them into different areas and different regions. And they were doing miracles and demons were running headlong as soon as they entered a town. And everybody's asking, not, what's going on with these 12 men? They're saying, what's up with Jesus? Who is this person that I keep hearing about? It couldn't have been easy. It wasn't easy for Paul. It certainly wasn't easy for these men. Think about it. Here are these peasants, most of them, fishermen, tax collectors, outcasts. They have never in their lives been mistaken for somebody important. And now they have this power, this undeniable power and this authority. They can walk into a town where women have been sick and ailing for years and just like Jesus did, heal them immediately. They can drive out demons just like Jesus did. Wouldn't it have been tempting to take even just a tiny sliver of the spotlight of what was going on? Wouldn't it have felt so nice for them to walk into a town and, and, and say and, and, and do all these things and at least uh, work these miracles and then quiet the crowds and say, you know, I used to be a horrible, terrible, wretched person. But now in the kingdom of God, I'm doing pretty well. Christianity has changed my life. It has taught me to act better, and to do better, and to think better, and to feel better. In Christianity, I gain satisfaction. Isn't that what we often hear? Maybe it's what we say, if it doesn't come out of our mouths, we we sometimes think it. Maybe Christianity is, is about me, maybe it's on focusing what Christianity does for me, maybe it's about focusing how I feel, having been forgiven from my sins but that's not what they did. They turned the focus to Jesus so that everybody was asking about Him, and they did it because verse 6 tells us they were preaching the gospel. The gospel, the good news, and the Christian gospel always militates against this sense of self-centeredness that it's all about us. Folks, what is the message of the gospel? It is the truth of Jesus who he is and what he's done and how we can trust in him rather than ourselves. The gospel is the truth that Jesus is a divine son of God who was born in the flesh, born under the law. The gospel is the truth that Jesus faithfully lived every jot and tittle of God's righteous law that you and I could never fulfill. The gospel message is the truth that Jesus suffered the death that you and I deserve to die on account of our sins. The gospel message is the truth that Jesus Christ has been raised again and now sits at the right hand of the Father and that he offers his righteousness to all who will trust in him and not themselves. That's the gospel. And these men were preaching the gospel and that meant these men were preaching Jesus. And that's what faithful ministry is always about. There's an urgency, and there's a compassion, and there's all these other things that we can talk about and ways that we can try to size ourselves up this morning. Well, are you a good enough Christian? Are you urgent enough in your speech? Are you compassionate enough with those that you come into contact with? Or we could get down to brass tacks and we could simply say, when people look at your life, do they know you trust in Jesus? Would that the Lord would make your life a broadcast of the gospel message. Not because you go everywhere and and impress people with how compassionate you are and how sensitive you are to the needs of others. That's important, and that's a part of it, I think. But would that the Lord would make you the Savior of Christ as he made the apostles. Would that you would go out into the world and people would look at you and they would hear the way you speak and they would see the way that you talk to others and the things that you do, and they would say, who is this Jesus that I hear so much about? And would that the Lord would... Answer that question in your own heart by faith today. We will not speak of Christ until we believe in Him. We will not magnify Christ until we come to Him in repentance and faith, until we say, it's not about me, actually. It's not about feeling good in Christianity. It's not about leaving church after a sermon that was maybe shorter than the rest of them normally are, and feeling, yeah, I feel pretty good on a a sunny fall Sunday. It's not about the feeling that we get from Christianity. It's about coming and and receiving his grace and his mercy and returning all thanks and praise to him. And so, uh, brothers and sisters, I pray the Lord would do this for you today, that he would make your hearts knit to him, that as you go in the world, he would spread his own fragrance, that he would minister to the world as he ministers to you. Won't you pray with me and seek that blessing for ourselves? O gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for Christ and him crucified. We thank you for him resurrected, seated at the right hand of the Father, and we pray that you would give faith among your people in him. Make us, O Lord, kingdom ambassadors. Make us people who are concerned about the gospel truth in the world, who do not play easy with truths of condemnation and, uh, and salvation but who go into the world having been saved and so carrying the joy of salvation on our lips and in our lives, O Lord, we pray that you would cause us to do these works and good works that you will work in us by your Spirit so that Christ would be lifted up and lifting him up that you would draw all men to yourselves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Come now to a table which proclaims again to us the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this uh, this table is. It is uh, a sign and a symbol, a seal of God's grace for His people. It comes to us having heard the gospel already in word, and in a sense we're now receiving the gospel indeed, in a tangible, in a sign, something that we can taste and.